drop reflecting on the water as the sun shuts her eyes don't know why you'll uncover watch the tide rolling with the moonlight everything is silent on this weezy piano night Jason Berry is a New Orleans-based investigative reporter, author, and film director who single-handedly pioneered reporting on child sex abuse and cover-ups within the Catholic Church. His 1985 articles for the Times Acadiana and the National Catholic Reporter detailing the abuse of Lafayette priest Father Gothay made Lafayette, Louisiana ground zero, with Gothay as the first priest to have faced a widely publicized criminal indictment for child molestation in the U.S. Jason's reporting was the fire that lit the match, so to speak. He had been reporting on the abuse 15 years before the 2002 series of stories published by the Boston Globe, which received a Pulitzer for its reporting on the widespread clergy child sex abuse in Boston and inspired the Academy Award winning film Spotlight. Jason's 1992 book, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, Catholic Priest and the Sexual Abuse of Children, is actually paid homage within the film Spotlight and was really the first major book on this subject. Barry appeared on countless talk shows like Oprah and The Phil Donahue Show, alongside other peers and whistleblowers like Father Greeley and Barbara Blaine, who had become deeply entrenched in the survivors' movement. Barbara Blaine was an abuse survivor who was inspired by Barry and would start the organization we now know as SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Jason Barry continued his coverage with a top-down approach all the way to the Vatican, exposing the church's pattern of corruption and silence through his nonfiction work and film, Vows of Silence, which shed light on the reported abuse of minors within the order Legionaries of Christ suffered at the hands of the group's founder, Father Marcial Machiel. More recently, Jason appeared in a New York Times 15-minute documentary, which posed to us directly, why didn't we listen then when Jason Berry blew the whistle on the Catholic Church? We hope we can get more clarity on that question today. But Clergy Scandal is not Jason's only oeuvre. He's written several other books, including a play about Louisiana political corruption called Earl Long and Purgatory. Moreover, Jason Berry is a renowned jazz writer, and his latest book, A City of a Million Dreams, was adapted into a film and explores New Orleans history through its unique tradition of jazz funerals and the second line, and is on view now at various screenings and film festivals. So without further ado, we are elated to learn more about the man who has made a career exposing a 2,000-year-old institution that is the Catholic Church while upholding this beautiful and strange history of a 300-year-old city that is New Orleans. Welcome, Jason Berry. We're so excited to have you with us. We're here today to discuss, as we mentioned, City of a Million Dreams, the book and the film of the same title, as well as your breaking of the Catholic Church story. But it's a little bit surreal with the Lafayette community. You must have received so much pushback on this topic. And now here's two people many, many years later. And we're now reaching out because we want to know about this story. Well, there was a lot of pushback uh, initially in uh, 1986 when I finished the series. And Richard Baudouin, the editor of the Times of Acadiana, published an editorial calling on the bishop to resign. Judge Edmond Reggie from Crowley fomented an advertiser's boycott, along with Monsignor Al Segur. Uh, I think they're both uh, deceased now. 
And the paper took about, oh, $25,000 in lost uh, ad revenues for a brief time before wiser hands and cooler heads prevailed, and they eventually backed down. But it was strange to be writing for an alternative weekly that was just down the block from the daily newspaper. And the daily newspaper, the advertiser, kept attacking us for our reporting. I wouldn't exactly call it a newspaper war, but I've never quite been in a situation like that. I do think, though, in the end, most people in the community realized that the work that I did and that the paper did uh, supporting it was on the right side and that the truth needed to come out. So in that sense, I think the message got out. And even though attempts to hurt the messenger failed, in the end, the community gained uh, by having that information. Absolutely. I want to read one quote from your book that really, I think, grounds us in the moment so we can go back. And for those who aren't familiar with the story, we can fill in the pieces. So you said, on trips to the store, I stared at milk cartons with faces of missing children and thought of Cajun altar boys. There's so many pieces of that, I think, really ground us in the moment. This is the 80s. You have children on milk cartons. Your faith, as you've mentioned in other interviews, is a big part in telling this story and the way that you personalize it and that you're a new parent. Can you walk us through this story and how you got involved? It was the fall of 1984 when Gilbert Gothe was indicted. And I was sort of struck by the news story that ran in the Times-Picayune. It wasn't on the front page, interestingly. I had gone to Jesuit High School and Georgetown University and had very good experiences with priests and nuns growing up and along the way. I could understand how a priest, like any man, could have some sort of pathological dimension to him that would lead him to do such terrible things. But I, just by chance, happened to know two of the lawyers involved in this legal saga. One of them, Raul Ben Como of New Orleans, had been a year behind me in high school, and he was representing a number of the families in Abbeville and that community in lawsuits against the diocese. And I also knew Ray Mouton, the attorney who was defending Father Gothe of the criminal charges. When Ben Como let me see the depositions that the bishop and other church officials had given, I was really struck, and this was barely 11 years, I guess, after Richard Nixon was caught up in Watergate, and it just reminded me of Watergate, that the bishop knew all this and yet kept recycling him. And so to me, from the very beginning, it was a political story, much more about the abuse of power than about religion. So I thought this was going to be an easy sell for a national publication. I had recently done a piece for the New York Times Magazine, but they said no. And the editor, who really wanted to assign it, told me in the letter that they felt they had to do a story on child sexual abuse, but they didn't think it should be done in the context of the Catholic Church. And I ran into that uh, same mentality in several other places major outlets, the Washington Post, the Nation, Rolling Stone. And so finally, I called Linda Mattis, who at the time was the editor of the Times of Acadiana. She'd previously been in New Orleans, and I had written for her when she was the editor of New Orleans Magazine. And she immediately agreed to an assignment and also agreed to a joint assignment, which I managed to arrange with National Catholic Reporter, an independent weekly based in Kansas City, Missouri. And so that's how it began. I guess I spent four or five months 
I think I called every priest in the diocese on the phone. Some of them agreed to talk on condition of anonymity. Others would not. A few just hung up the phone. But by and large, I got an incredible window on the internal dynamics of the diocese through the legal documents, the discovery process, and a couple of church insiders, one of whom in particular gave me a great deal of material. And as you've said, even though the focus was this one priest, Father Gothe, it was really reflexive of a larger problem. And there were also more parish priests within the Lafayette Diocese that you had uncovered shared the same pathology. I can't imagine it must have been really challenging because the victims were minors. How did you go about finding the list of victims and the accused priests and then corroborating that information? There was a fair amount in the legal record. There was an attorney, J. Minus Seymour. I devote an entire chapter really to him in the early section of the book. And he put together a list of 22 priests and he wanted all their personnel files and wanted to know about any incidences of pedophilia or homosexuality. He and I had several long conversations where I tried to explain that pedophilia was an illness, a severe illness to say the least, with criminal properties associated with it, whereas homosexuality is an orientation. The two are not the same thing at all. Nonetheless, his list was out there. The church lawyer called it a fishing expedition. And I made it a point to try to get information on or contact everybody on that list. I think most of the seven men I eventually wrote about were on that list. One or two may not have been. Yes, it was challenging. I did a great deal of work on the telephone late at night, talking to people, taking notes. And then as more documents came out, there was one priest John Engbers, he was from Holland, and he was an art teacher. And Anthony Fontana, an attorney in Abbeville, called me after the first series of articles had come out. And he said, I have some clients. I believe it was five sisters, the Butoh sisters, who were all molested by this man growing up near Sippermore Point. And so I spent a long afternoon interviewing those women, and it was I must say, one of the most heart-pulling experiences of my life to listen to each one of those women recount what the priest had done to them and how they gradually learned that each of them was a victim. And uh, when the lawsuit was prepared, the priest fled and went back to Holland. So I had a pretty good sense of the traumatic aftershocks that survivors carry through those interviews. I interviewed several of the parents of the younger children. And at that time, none of the young people, or at least their parents, wanted them to give interviews. And I understood that. The allegations, though, contained in the indictment were pretty striking. I had several long sessions with Nathan Stansberry, the DA. And I got a pretty rounded sense, if you will, of of what had happened. And standing back, as I guess every writer tries to do to some degree, I also got a, a rare view of what this terrible scandal was doing to a heavily Catholic community, because most of the people involved, I think two of the judges were Catholic. Nathan Stansbury, the prosecutor, had been raised Catholic, And had many warm memories of that childhood in the church. So a lot of people were coming to terms with uh, hypocrisy in the church. And all of that 
a sort of continuing insight as I kept reporting. And then by 1987, I had leads uh, that took me to Michigan and Cleveland and other parts of the country, which eventually helped fill out the national scope of the book. I think we might even take for granted you are such a pioneer in reporting this particular subject as well as how cover-ups work in that kind of system. But it was so interesting in your book that was, I, I think, written in 1992, just to hear you kind of wrestling with these topics that were still pretty new, pedophilia, child abuse. You mentioned this one treatment center in particular who was treating these priests that suffered from this particular pathology. Did you get a sense then that we were better equipped to handle the types of people within our society? Well, it was like going into a long tunnel with a flashlight trying to figure out where the other end was. I was highly skeptical, but I tried to maintain a certain dispassionate attitude about the treatment centers. I remember going to a conference at Johns Hopkins University where seven or eight pedophiles were on a stage talking about their treatment. And there were all these law enforcement officers, detectives and people in the audience. And there was sort of an unofficial agreement that they weren't going to go up after the session and arrest these guys. And I remember at one of the coffee breaks, I was just standing there talking to one of the audience members, and he was just shaking his head saying, I can't believe I'm listening to people talk about this and they're not behind bars. So I came away from that area of the research convinced that the church should give men like that treatment, but doing it on the way out and not do out of the priesthood and doing it not as a way of dodging prosecution. In essence, many of the bishops used the treatment centers as safe houses, places to put these guys rather than report them to police. And as a consequence, many of them got out and reoffended. In fact, there was one treatment center in New Mexico run by servants of the paraclete, an order that specialized in treating priests with all kinds of disabilities. And the founder of the order Back in the 1960s, this came out sometime later, <laughs> he even bought an island in the Caribbean where he was going to put these guys. And the Vatican made him sell the island, and, and he did not want to take pedophiles into these treatment centers. His focus was on getting alcoholics into sobriety. And I think in retrospect, Father Fitzgerald was his name. He was absolutely correct, and I think he foresaw the terrible problem that eventually was exposed, more so than he probably ever imagined. So I teach a serial sex offender class, and we do our chapter on institutional settings, and we talk about religious organizations, and when it inevitably comes up from the students, it's like, why does this seem such like a Catholic religion problem? And what I usually say is, well, we have a lot of research on the Catholic Church compared to other institutions, for one, so we just know more about it for a host of reasons. But also, if an institution gets the reputation of protecting certain types of people, then that can lure in the people who want to be protected. What sense did you get, I guess, about the problem in the Catholic Church? I think in fairness to the church, many of the dioceses and religious orders are far more concerned today about not admitting men who have this severe pathology. 
They use many of the psychological counseling procedures before they are admitted to seminary or religious life, and I believe there are even sort of checkpoint moments along the way. Deviant behavior, however, by its very nature, is secretive, so some people can mask uh, this kind of stuff. You see it, and I'm only speaking anecdotally now because I really haven't continued researching this in depth, But I'm struck every morning I read the Bishop Accountability. It's called Abuse Tracker. It's available on the Internet. And I'm struck by how many cases of priests are being arrested for child pornography, amassing these large video collections and things like that, which is a form of child abuse in itself, because when you have pictures and images like that, it means that a child has been terribly abused, being utilized in such an unfair and unconscionable way. You're right that there is a great deal more information on the Catholic Church, but I would say to give some balance that if you look at the Me Too movement, and particularly people like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and others, admittedly their victims were adult women. They were not young children. But the same phenomenon of a severe power imbalance applies. And I think in society, we are only really coming to terms with how widespread sexual victimization can be, whether to children or adults. I'm in no way trying to minimize the problem that the church has, but many other denominations now are wrestling with these issues the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, there are all kinds of lawsuits and prosecutions one reads about. So it's become a much more extensive problem in society, sad to say. So for our listeners that are maybe wondering, have we reached a point that the church has gotten better at handling these kinds of cases and transparency? I think we were reading that there's something called credibly accused that the church deems. Can you talk a little bit about where we are and if there's been improvements on that front? There have been improvements. The fact that there are many safe touch programs, as they're called in uh, Catholic schools, where kids are given instruction so that they know that there are certain forms of behavior that are not acceptable. You don't want to warp a child with information. At the same time, you want a child to realize that something that comes along like that should be protested. I think the, the number of priests who have been publicly identified is an important step. Activist groups are still pushing for greater transparency and accountability in the naming of priests, posting of these names publicly. I think, too, the willingness of many dioceses and religious orders to enter into settlements with survivors, sometimes even though the statute of limitations has passed, and not insisting that they sign agreements that force them into silence. These are important steps. On the other hand, the scope of the crisis is really much larger than I think anyone realized. The Pennsylvania grand jury report that came out a couple of years ago went into enormous depth on the cover-up tactics. I think the generation of bishops that is coming forth now, men in their 40s and 50s, are acutely aware that they can't use the playbook that uh, their predecessors did, which is just keep quiet, move the guy along, and deny it when they're forced to talk about it. So 
I, for one, never imagined that it would take so long for the church to come to terms with what they really need to do. And to me, there are two major steps that the church has to make. I don't know when or if they will. But the first is to change the seminary system and to open studies for ministry to married men and women, whether women are married or not. We need, I think, a priesthood that is more reflective of Catholic society, for one. And the other is to establish an independent criminal court at the Vatican. I did a piece in the Washington Post on this a couple of years ago, which would have discovery powers that Western countries provide, unlike the Italian system and canon law, which are part of a sort of Latin worldview in which the reputation of a given cleric should be upheld. There's still lots of Vatican officials who believe that priests must be handled as special human beings because they are ontologically different. I mean, that's kind of the theology. Pope Francis is a reformer. I think he is trying. He has stiffened some of the canonical procedures available. He has certainly removed his share of bishops, and he's changed his mind publicly on certain situations, as in Chile, most strikingly. So even at his age, what is he, I think, 85 now? He's a work in progress, and that's kind of interesting. He certainly made his mistakes, but on this, he is sensitive, and I think he's changing, and he has met with a great many survivors, which is also quite good. I can't imagine the emotional toll. We, we ask this frequently on our show, but how do you deal with writing such difficult topics? What's your process to decompress if there is one? I think the answer is music. I've written a great deal about New Orleans music, both as a jazz critic and I had a music column with New Orleans Magazine for almost 25 years. My first documentary was about two families of jazz musicians and the film I've just released, City of a Million Dreams, is about jazz funerals. So... The music takes me to another sphere. It allows me to rekindle hope in the human experiment and to also appreciate that at a certain level, life can also be a human comedy. So I've tried to maintain that balance in my life as best I can. And I read a great deal of fiction and poetry as well. Well, I would love now to pivot to discussing your film and book, City of a Million Dreams, if we can. For those who aren't familiar, what is a jazz funeral and what is the second line? And I'm sure you have, but have you participated in the oh, second line? Yeah, I've been going to funerals with music since uh, 1973. The jazz funeral typically has two stages. There is the religious stage, the mourning, either in a mortuary or inside a church the musicians playing the slow, somber dirges, and then the march out of the church, escorting the casket into the hearse, and then again continuing with the sad melodies of remembrance, songs like Just a Closer Walk with Thee, By and By, other gospel tunes. And then when the cortege reaches the point where there will either be an interment in a graveyard right on the spot, or they go off to a distant cemetery. Once the formal proceeding is done, the music changes into up-tempo, high-kicking music for the second line, which is the, the movement of dancers who are now celebrating the soul gone to its earthly release. The funerals are quite beautiful to see and quite dramatic. I've gone to hundreds over the years. I've filmed, I guess, about oh, maybe 25 or 30 Everyone is different. 
Each one is almost like a, a short story in performance about a given neighborhood, a given congregation, uh, a given group, and of course the person who died. It's so interesting, the, the marriage between the book and the film and just this kind of idea of really dancing through tragedy in New Orleans history of, as you mentioned, war and hurricanes and disease to kind of thwart to today with COVID and recent crime spikes. How is this tradition inserted or pivoted into overcoming those obstacles as well? It has come back. There have been funerals with music now for several months since the COVID protocols were lessened. The funerals are caravans of memory. They carry the story of the city through the stories of the people who are mourning, remembering the dead. And I think the funerals ultimately are a testament to the resilience and life of the city. Can we talk a little bit about, it was so interesting in your book, and as you mentioned, there's a slight nod in the film, but there's kind of the intersection between the jazz funeral with the late Alan Toussaint. And then at the midst of this is the debate over the removal of the Confederate statues around 2015. Can you explain how that reflects kind of the overarching themes of your works? Well, when Toussaint died in 2015, he had been performing in Madrid and had a heart attack uh, right after one of his appearances on stage. And so by the time the body came back, there was a huge crowd at the Orpheum Theater downtown. This was right at the time of the pretty intense debate, both in the media and city council chambers, over the Landrieu administration's plan. Mayor Mitch Landrieu was backed, I think, six to one by the city council. And as a matter of law, the city had the right to do exactly what it did. Landrieu was very careful in researching how the statues were put up in the first place, and they were put up by the city. The argument of the book, and in a sense, this is a theme that courses through the film as well, is that the beguiling personality of New Orleans is really the product of a long tension between a culture of spectacle rooted in the early dances of African-blooded people at Congo Square, enslaved people, and on the other side, a city of, of laws that for most of our history was rooted, anchored in white supremacy. That began to change in the 1960s with federal court rulings. And so the lens I applied to the story of the city kept a bead, if you will, if I'm not mixing metaphors, but I wanted to follow the way in which this culture evolved and how the city that was built upon these principles of monarchy and white supremacy ultimately had to change. And the funerals were a major part of that. It feels like as someone who is a Louisiana native and then left and thought they would never come back and then very quickly came back, there's something about Louisiana that's just special. It pulls you in, right? There, there's something about it that's great. There has to be, considering we have so many damn problems. As somebody who studied a whole bunch of those Louisiana problems, what do you say for us? What is it? What do we need to do? And how do we invest in that? I think we need to redefine the concept of hope. We all yearn for hope right now. And I think what we want more than anything is to believe that there is a future 
with some abundance for the kids coming up, for our children and grandchildren. And yet we can't do that when the politics of hate becomes so dominant as we have in this state. COVID was an absolute game changer. And the fact that half the people in the state still won't get shots is a sign that we got a lot of work to do. Hope comes when people embrace reasonable change. And I think that's the struggle we have today to redefine hope. So it includes black people and white people together and doesn't try to divide them. Well, I want to end with, I think we're approaching our time that we have with you today. Where can people buy your books and view City of a Million Dreams? And are you working on anything at the moment? Is there anything coming down the pike? Well, first of all, City of a Million Dreams can be ordered at your local bookstore. You can get it online at Amazon. There is a website, cityofamilliondreams.com, for the film, which updates the various screenings. We've got a pretty long road ahead of us with a road tour being put together to show the film, have a panel discussion, and take the band of Dr. Michael White. He's the navigational protagonist of the film, great clarinetist. That is where I am putting a great deal of my energy right now. Well, we look forward to seeing you on the road. We would love to go to Lafayette, and I'm hoping we might be able to put that together. Is there anything else you want to leave today with before we wrap? Frankly, I think that my salvation as a writer, if you will, has been that I live in New Orleans and that I've written a lot about the city and Louisiana, of course, as well. Two of the three books on the church I've done are about the Vatican. And for years, I made trips back and forth to Rome. And I got to tell you, I would come home just filled up with all kinds of information oftentimes lugging an extra bag or suitcase with material in it. And when the plane would come down over the Louis Armstrong airport and I could see the lake and just almost feel the soil pulling me down to my terrain, it's a very special feeling to be rooted in a place that has such a rich imaginative life. I feel quite fortunate to be from here and being rooted here, it helps one keep a certain optimism about the human experiment. Thank Thank you you so so much, much, Jason. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Very much so. Yes. Thank you. Have a good weekend and rest of your day. Take care.